Hello, welcome back to another episode of I Am. In this episode, I sit down with another dear friend of mine, Lori Williams. In this episode, we learn how Lori maintains a positive perspective despite her professional and personal challenges, along with her reaction to the insurrection of January 6th. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. This is an exceptional episode, and I can't wait to share it with you. So let's get into it. All right. Hello, Lori. How are you doing? Um, please introduce yourself to the listeners um, and just let us know who Lori is. Yeah. So, hey, Janet. Hope you're doing well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to act like we haven't talked fairly recently. Um, but no, I'm Lori. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Lori, like you said. Um, I'm doing fairly well today. I'm actually outside on my back stoop, which is a nice place I found to work kind of simulates the coffee shop experience so but I just bring my own I bring my own coffee um and so there are some kids playing outside and we have a community garden so if it gets loud let me know and I can move back inside um but yeah I'm Lori um my background and who I am um I guess are two different things but um if you want to be technical but I think to introduce myself um, a little bit. Um, Janet, you and I met um, when you, you were interning on the Hill and I was working on the Hill. Um, so that's kind of our, our genesis of our friendship. Um, and I'm from Tennessee. I'm from the South. So I think that's a part of me that, that I hold dear. Um, I think a part, another part of my identity that I really hold here is my my place and my family um and my relationship with my family I'm the youngest of four kids and the youngest by quite a few years and so now I have nieces and nephews and I'm an aunt and I think that that's also something about me that I really enjoy um is having family connection and and actually one of the benefits under you know silver linings I guess of COVID was being able to spend quite a bit of time with my family over the past year and I think um, that was something I didn't have as much as a little kid growing up because my siblings were much older. So um, that was something that I've enjoyed. Um, more about me, I, I'm a student, um, technically, but also I like the mindset of a student. Um, I like to learn and I like to read. Um, I really love the Sunday crossword puzzle. Um, I like to run. Um, and hang out with my friends. I really love like long drives by myself. Um, and so I think kind of probably I'd be described as a, maybe an introverted extrovert um, in that I really get a lot of energy from being around people, but also find a lot of um, benefits in being able to reflect and be alone and be quiet. Um, and so, yeah, I think. I think that's where I'll start. I think we'll probably unpack a lot more as we go on, but happy to to delve into some of those things. But but yeah, that's me. That's Lori. <laughs> Tell us a bit about your professional background, um, your work on the Hill and also your international work too. Yeah. So like I mentioned, I mean, obviously, you know this, Janet, but listener, you do not. Um, Janet and I met when I was working on the Hill, which is... Um, I guess to, to kind of go backwards in time, um, when I was in college, um, I started studying international relations just kind of because it sounded cool and it was something, you know, I'd always been fascinated by 
places outside the U.S. and traveling and that sort of thing. And so I thought that studying international relations would be a good fit. And it, it was. I really enjoyed it. Um, but when I got to into college, I was like, well, I'll have to like move to D.C. I want to use my degree. And, and so D.C. is the place to go, um, which is true, I think, uh, in a lot of respects. Not that you can't use your international studies degree elsewhere. But for me, I had this goal to move to D.C. and I had friends moving to D.C. So it seemed like a great fit. But I didn't have a job, which is kind of a thing if you move to D.C. that, that you probably won't get a job if you're not living there. And so you kind of have to just shoot your shot and kind of pick up and move is generally the advice. Um, and people say it will work out from there. For me, it did. I, I was interning on, in the Senate and then ended up getting a job there and, and working on a committee that, that deals with international relations. And I wasn't doing anything policy wise, but I was just fascinated by the environment. Um, I really didn't expect to like politics as much as I did. And, and I'd always been fairly politically active at meaning that I held opinions strongly but didn't really have a desire to go into the, what I considered like the swampish, you know, politics realm. Um, but I actually found that I really enjoyed it. I like keeping up with people and characters around the hill and, and the policy process. And so I got to learn a lot of that and, and learn most importantly that, that that was something I liked and that I was passionate about. Um, but from there, I was able to, to get a job working on the government relations team um, for uh, a large international organization in DC. And that was kind of a dream come true for me. I, I am getting to do work on areas that I find both personally and professionally fulfilling and working specifically with, with refugees. Um, or on refugee policy, I should say. Um, share what the organization is. Just yeah, I will. I will. It's it's UNHCR. I was trying to. I'm not sure if I can like. I don't know about the like me saying I work there, um, but I can look into that because I technically am a contractor, so I don't want to like misrepresent. I work for a UN contracting agency, but for UNHCR, so I don't want to misrepresent myself. Um, but yeah, we can, t I can figure that out better than I, than I have so far. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm, and I think my interest in working with refugees and people who've been forced to flee their homes started when I was fairly young. Um, and I, I worked quite a bit with refugees when I was in college in the re resettlement organization in Memphis, Tennessee, and found that very fulfilling and eye-opening and heart-wrenching and um, beautiful and so I think especially during the past four years when when the rhetoric around refugees was very caustic and unhealthy uh, in the U.S. I was more motivated to to learn more and get really into the the weeds I guess on how the U.S. interacts with international refugee law and, and the politics around what we say versus what we do and how we as a country can be better um, and, and welcome more people in. So that's me. That's my professional trajectory. I'm, I'm currently very happy with, <laughs> with, with my, with my work life at the moment. I work with great people. I enjoy what I do. I get to do a vast variety of things, a wide variety of things. Um, 
every week and every day. And so I don't get bored. Uh, and I get to read about things for work that are things I would read about for fun usually. So I think that's a good sign that I'm in a in the good place for right now. Um, and just kind of taking it easy and trying to learn as much as I can and, and figure out what my skills are and where I can use them most effectively to, to be of service to others. Um, so I think that's a, that's for everyone, I think an evolving journey, but I'm at the beginning of that. So, uh, it's exciting. It's definitely exciting to think about like the possibilities, but, um, right now I'm very happy. I'm very happy in DC and, and in this, in this current track. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So you've always had such a grounding perspective, but I just wonder how do you stay grounded despite your prominent experiences um, that be traveling around the world um, or even your experiences on the Hill, but also in DC professionally? Yeah, I think, well, thank you. First of all, that's very nice to say I'm grounded. Uh, sometimes I don't feel very grounded. Um, I think, I think it, it's really good perspective and I'll go back a little bit further to, to kind of how I became interested in, in the, the world beyond the U.S. And, and totally fine for people who are not interested in that. I don't want to make it sound like that's something to be extremely proud of or I don't, I don't think of it that way, but I've always been interested in the places outside the U.S. So, and I think that started when I was really, really little and um it started through church and and raising money for for you know different causes around the world and all this these sorts of things that you do when you're at a church in a small town and really little that were just totally mind-boggling to me that people lived such different lives than I did um or that they lived very similar lives but they were just 4,000 or 5,000 miles away or halfway around the world so I became very fascinated by that and really wanted to to engage with that more. And I think in particular, I, I remember one experience when I was really little, I was at a church conference with my mom and we heard a speaker who works, worked for um, World Relief, which is um, an evangelical uh, international assistance organization, nonprofit. And I remember being very struck by the fact that like they were raising money for these children that at the time it was the um, AIDS epidemic in Africa was, was really strong at the point and at that point and a lot of money was being raised around the world. PEPFAR had just been um, initiated by the US government, which is one of the most successful foreign assistance programs the US has ever run. Um, and so it was, it was getting a lot of attention. So the, and naturally this church conference, we were talking about it and I was there with my mom and they were showing pictures of babies, you know, quote unquote, in Africa, um, whose parents had passed away from AIDS or who, who the babies themselves might be HIV positive. And I was really, really sad about that. And, and I've always kind of been that way where if I get sad news, I have to, I get very affected by it. And so I really wanted to help. And I told my mom that I needed to go and help you know I needed to be on the ground basically helping mom's like maybe not at six years old that might not be like the thing that we do um but good let's channel this energy and so I was able to kind of you know go back and do little you know speeches around the church church at home and like you know different 
community organizations and try and raise a little bit extra money. And I think that was very important for her to, to give me that realistic lesson, but also the, the slack to actually act on what I was interested in, in a productive way. And so I think that started me very young um, and being aware that, that I was living a life of privilege and that there are a lot of people who, you know, not to, not to sound like, you know, I don't ever want to say like, you know, I'm sorry about the life somebody else leads um, or sorry for them. But I think the awareness um, starting at a young age that, that I was privileged and that I could, I could use that um, and leverage that to make a, make an impact has always stuck with me. And so not by no means do I think I like, and making the impact I, I will make today um, or making an impact today that's like gargantuan. Um, but I think over time, it's I've kind of morphed and seen, again, where my skills might lead me that, that can maximize the impact I'm able to have um, in the world and, and for people. And I think, I think that's a kind of saying an ever- green kind of journey that that is morphing throughout your life my life um but yeah I think I think back to your original question and all this I think being grounded for me has always been just the awareness that I am one piece of a very 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 large puzzle and I think travel to your question has been a huge huge part of that I mean of course you know, I was exposed to, to these kind of outside places and, and faraway places by my parents at a young age because they enjoyed traveling and learning about places outside the U.S., but getting to do some of that myself and them encouraging it and, and making sure that I, that I found the opportunities to do that was also very important. It only builds, builds perspective, and so I think that's been very grounding. And it's something, it's something powerful about, like, going to a place that seems completely different than your daily place or your daily life and finding the similarities um, or coming or, or seeing a practice and thinking we do that very differently, but this actually seems like a better way. Like, why is this, so, why do we do these things completely differently um, and get the same result? Or, you know, it, it, it just shows that how interconnected people are and that we all have similar wants and dreams for ourselves and our families and our communities. And that, I think that I think is humbling at the same time that it's empowering and, you know, builds, builds a sense of community with it, within people, you know, around the world. So that, I don't know, that's a very long winded way of saying, I think the grounding comes from the going. Um, I think you have to be a little bit ungrounded um, to become grounded because if you live in a bubble of you just yourself and things that are familiar, then you may be completely out of touch with with the way that the world works. And so I think I think gaining perspective any way that you can, and that doesn't have to be traveling, that can just be reading and learning and, and asking yourself questions and asking questions to others who may have a different perspective than you. You can gain that perspective in all sorts of ways. Um, so, yeah, and I think that I think this COVID pandemic it has been a good lesson in that because we haven't been able to travel, right? So how are we continuing to learn and, and gain perspective about ourselves and others um, in a time when when the usual ways of doing that have been have been removed as options? So, yeah, I think I don't know that that answered your question at all, but 
No, you definitely answered the question, especially how you articulated that you're the piece in a puzzle of various many individuals in this world. So that I think in itself, if you're leading with that, that definitely sounds like you are grounded for sure. <laughs> um, so, I thought it made some sense. No, it made a lot of sense. Um, so you've had the opportunity to interact with communities of color that those that who look like you, you're look like yourself um because it should be noted um and you're also welcome to note it yourself that you are <laughs> I would elevate that to actually like a southern belle because Lori is yeah. very much warm and inviting like that so very very southern belle like actually um how have you responded to those who have distanced themselves on the basis of class or race um and you can even talk about how you grappled with conversations of white privilege yeah, that's a good, I mean, I think that's a question that is always, again, evolving for each individual. And again, the events of the past year um, and more, obviously, have, have made those conversations even more important, both internally and, and with others. Um, I think for me, again, to go back, I think that all of the, the times that I've been able to be um, in a room of people who don't look like me, or been able to have constructive conversations with people who think very differently than me. And that can be on either side. I mean, I grew up in a small Southern town as someone with extremely liberal views. I was one of the only <laughs> people to ascribe to my set of liberal views. Um, and so I think I became again at a young age accustomed to listening more than, than talking because uh, frankly, like when I was young, I didn't really want to be the only person like <laughs> who had who thought a, a certain way, um, because that can be uncomfortable at a young age um, to confront. And so, again, I have to say, give credit to my family for being really open about their beliefs and and making them known and and making me feel strong and and grounded in them and able to communicate how I how I view the world and, and social issues and people and relationships. So um, again, all credit to them. But I, I think in the past year, since George Floyd was murdered, we've had to be asking ourselves these questions and, and oftentimes people act like this isn't a conversation we've, we've needed to have like it's this kind of surprise like oh wait what what's wrong um why are you guys upset um and I think that's just indicative of a lack of understanding and so again I have to go back to this idea that if you're not putting yourselves in the situation that it might be uncomfortable um then you won't learn <laughs> ever and so I know that's easier said than done but I think that's always the the advice I would ascribe to and give is, is if you're completely comfortable in your life all the time, there might be some areas where we should start to question, um, question the norm and question um, the reality that you're living in, because it may not be exactly aligned with the reality that is, that is someone else's or that is, you know, the majority of other people. Um, and so I think, again, you know, always the best, best method is, is to do that interaction and those conversations you know you me someone else you know you're building those organically and and intentionally 
and having them face to face as you know firsthand but I think there are lots of other ways especially like during the pandemic to do that I think learning um, about resources and reading about experiences reading about history like that is the thing that people don't you know that's my frustration I think in conversations today where it's like well I don't think I why all of a sudden are we worried about police brutality against African-American people the black and brown people and it's like we didn't just start getting worried about like that's been a problem and like if you like so I think an understanding of history and sociology and and intergroup dynamics um is super important and I think it's really it's quite disappointing sometimes um to me that that groups in America are uh separated and seem to be hold animosity towards other groups when when in reality like if we if we're all able to succeed um together then then everyone is kind of an all ship will rise like if we are able to have equality that is true and based in the law and we're able to have equity that's real and actionable then does not everyone benefit from that um and it's not a finite it's not a zero-sum game and so i think that's that's the issue i see as prominently now with some politicians and some narratives that have been perpetuated is that you know if so and so gets more or gets what they should be given legally or morally then i get less and that's not that's not the case at all and i so i think the responsibility we have to combat that narrative and, and show that building systems that are equitable and, and just benefit everyone um, is the most important is the most important message that can be that can be portrayed today. Um, but what would you say to others? And you may have already answered this um, to other white people as they cope with the realization that they are beneficiaries of systems of oppression. Um, what do you expect of those within our age group as well? And you've already touched on the topic of equity and equality, um, seeing that individuals must look at things not only from an even playing field, but understanding how each person can get to that even playing field considering their respective backgrounds. Um, and how do you respond to these views, these alarming views? Or yeah. yeah, I think, so on your first, the first, question about how you know do other white people cope I think that's such an annoying thing to have to <laughs> discuss because it's not like I feel like the narrative today is so backwards in a way or remains stuck in this idea that we have to tell white people that it's okay that they're angry because another group of people is angry about the way they've been treated by white people for hundreds of years. Like it's, it's, um, we're beyond, like I'm beyond at least. I get, that's the conversation I get frustrated in having to make white people feel better. Um, but I understand it's a, it's a ongoing challenge. So, so I think, I think communicating that a, we're not blaming all white people for slavery. We're not blaming all white people for police brutality, but we're saying we as a group of, of, of people in this society are benefiting 
across the board because of phenotypical characteristics that may or may not actually indicate our whiteness. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's all visual, right? So, and we know that because because victims of police brutality aren't always of the same you know race, but they may look similar enough, and we can see that trend line, right? And so, I think that explaining that we are all beneficiaries, like you said, of a system of oppression. And that's not to minimize the hardships that white people face. I mentioned I mean, my hometown I grew up in is extremely, extremely high rates of poverty and it's rural poverty. And that's very persistent and difficult to address. Um, and I think I don't ever want to minimize that experience that, that certain parts of the town I grew up in had or have. Um, and I can see how that can be a point of defensiveness for, for certain groups of people to say, well, I've had it difficult and why should I not get treated? And I think that's again to the same point I was making earlier that it's not a zero sum game um, and that we can all benefit um, from, from more equitable society or more equal society. But, but I, think, I think explaining um, and trying to, to, to raise the narrative that this isn't about um, you being, or me being, um, you know, actively racist and saying hateful things or something like that. That's the typical, you know, expectation, but that, and it's not that I, I will never face hardships in my life. I will. Um, we all will surely. Um, but that the hardships I face are not because of the color of my skin, which is not the case. Um, for other groups of our society. And so I think that that's a really important, um, and in and, and that, a reason that, that comprehensive and robust social safety nets are important for people of all races and all segments of society, because yeah, we do all deserve to, to, to have a fighting chance. And, and I think, but recognizing ultimately that, that we are still stuck in a system that prioritizes race over everything, or at least the, the outward appearance of your race. Um, I think, but until we recognize that, we can't move on. We can't discuss other things because we are still stuck. Um, and so I think to your question about people within our age group, I mean, I think, I think people within our age group, and I probably live in a bubble of social media, right? But uh, people who think like me, but I think, I think people of our generation are generally more up with the tie I could be wrong um but I think people of our generation are starting this message is starting to get salience um and saturate our generation but I think again not you know it is a constant work and I I think I don't I don't give our generation too much slack because we have so much at our disposal to learn through we have social media we have access to the internet. We have, you know, constant news streaming that is, you know, the proof of, of all these issues playing out in real time. And so I just, I don't give us too much of an excuse. I may have a lot of, and I don't want to put all of the onus on our generation to fix this, but I do think that we have a real opportunity and a real capability um, to make a dent in, in the way that, the U.S. 
talks about race and, and engages with racial issues. And and yeah, I think on I think I probably harped on this enough by now, but on equity versus equality, I think you can't really have equity until you have equality, right? So like legally the laws have to apply the same way to all people. All people have to be included. So we've we've in a lot of ways, you know, strive towards that as a country for for a couple hundred years um, and made good progress on the legal part of that. And I mean, there are still gaps, of course, but I think now we're reaching the hard question of making sure that we have equity. Um, So that's beyond the legal definition of equality. That's into the, are we all starting at the same space? Um, And that's the more tricky part to address, I think. And I don't think we're, I think we're up to that challenge. Um, And I think it just, means continuing these conversations where again it's like not say I'm not canceling your hardships because you're white that's not you know I understand completely but all I'm saying is that your whiteness did not cause your hardships um so I think those are that's the more tricky part that we have to continue to address um and I think responding to those (laughs) who have, you know, alarming racist views, it's, I'm not good at it. So I'm still learning how to do that. And I think, um, I think easier said than done, right, to have a conversation and to engage them about this issue, because people can grow really defensive really quickly. Um, And I'm not an expert at diffusing that sort of tension, nor am I good at it. So um, I think that's a a work in progress always. and should be. Um, but again, it's like, it comes with practice, right? Like you can't be good at that. If you don't practice having, you can't be good at having hard conversations if you never have hard conversations. Mm -hmm. So it's a challenge I'll present to myself to continue to do that in a constructive way and and push myself to, because also the more you articulate your views, the stronger you become in them. And so obviously we can see that that has negative effects if your views are, are not wholesome or positive, but um, I think the more we talk about them, the more ingrained they become and, and the better we're able to articulate um, ourselves and, and the stronger our arguments for justice and change and positive and progression as a society um, become. We also would hope that all conversations within respective parties are like this, but we, that right, we're also right. not a monolith in that regards when it comes to the conversations we're having today. Exactly. Um, you'd hope that they're as fruitful or comprehensive, but I understand that they can't be, but you can only hope for the best, honestly. Right. Okay, so let's transition over to the conversations of <laughs> the insurrection on our nation's capital. Um, how would you describe or explain your passion for the hell? Um, and how would you explain your feelings to those who don't understand why January 16th was such an impactful day? Yeah, I think, well, or January you know. 6th, I said January 6th, uh, January 6th. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, yeah, I think, um, so we talked about, you know, us both being on the hill and I think if you've had the experience of working there um in congress and walking these halls that are filled with history and really impactful and um not only filled with history but also filled with people today who are um from all around the world um who appreciate 
the beacon of democracy that our capital is. Um, I think, yeah, I think once you are there and see it, it, it is, it would be, I would be surprised if people don't leave that building with a, with a feeling of reverence and, and passion about it. Um, maybe that's just me because I like politics and I know a lot of people have a great disdain for politics, but I think even aside from that, even if you don't like politics, um, the symbol of our nation's democracy, which, you know, was a project that was not supposed to succeed um, and that the Capitol Dome, the Capitol itself has withstood so much. I mean, I think just my historical nerdiness, but I mean, the fact that during the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln mandated the continuous construction of the Capitol because he felt that it was that important to have a symbol for the American people that the country was not going to fracture into two halves, that, that we would continue to work um, towards, towards, you know, at that point, a cause that was morally, you know, morally uh, in, inherent and morally, we couldn't continue on without addressing the question. And so I think, I think that in that way that the Capitol Dome is just, I'm in awe of it every time I see it. And I mean, it is, it never loses its luster for me. And so, yeah, I think the, the feelings I had watching the news on January 6th um, were feeling them just really, I mean, it was strange. It was like uh, watching people walk through with very little, very little, no respect for, for a place that I had um, grown to love and, and walk the same halls, you know, seeing people walk the halls that I'd walked before and, and show no regard for the sanctity of, of the place and, and to do so in the name of, well, this is our house too. This belongs to Americans. Well, I don't know about you, but I tend to not destroy my home because just because it's mine. Um, and so I think that that showed a real, showed a real disconnect between how a certain segment of society views democracy, views our democracy, um, not as something to be protected and cared for, but something that is to be taken by force. And I don't, I don't ascribe to that. And so, yeah, I think the, the, the footage on January 6th was unsettling. And I mean, I strange. I like was very concerned about the artwork. Like I was like, I hope that they don't ruin this artwork. And it's like, this painting would be, be tragic if this painting was lost. And it's like, yeah, of course that's a small thing that I'm trying to control in my head, but I mean, on the whole, it, it was just very disturbing. And I think a lot of people, I'm sure you share that view too, that it's, mm -hmm. it's just surreal and just kind of bizarre that people could be so callous and so um, unfeeling toward a, towards a place that to me holds extreme esteem and, and importance in my mind. Um, yeah, I mean, it'd be like walking into a museum and like, just defacing the artwork in a museum or something like it, it it's just un, unthinkable to me so yeah I don't know what um yeah I think yeah that's my thought <laughs> no and I totally agree with you I felt like 
watching what had happened was very heartbroken, heartbreaking. Um, and my response was much more emotional than it is today because it just made me think of one thing that was really interesting is just hearing the reflections of other members of Congress saying how their families had a sense of fear after the insurrection of actually visiting DC, which is very jarring and very sad because that's a place that is of access for a very historic reason, as you've mentioned. Um, why is the removal of lapel pins in order to disguise their affinity of the, the removal of the the pins by members of Congress in order to disguise their affinity with in Congress. Why is that so significant? And this is us nerding out for a second on the minute details that come with being members of Congress. Um, and what is the historical symbol of the capital and the structural significance as well? If you can touch on those themes. Yeah, well, I think like the reports that, that members of Congress's families have been threatened and I mean, after the preceding impeachment trials as well, that's just very disturbing. I mean, it's like it, it, and they're they're having to remove their lapel, pin, lapel pins uh, in fear that you know if if a rioter saw them that they would become be physically harmed. As that, as that appeared to be the motivation for quite a few of the people who committed domestic terrorism on January sixth, their intention did seem to be harm to members of Congress. It's just, it's disturbing in that, and like, I don't, you know, I feel very uh, sympathetic towards people who have to live through that experience in person and are no doubt facing post-traumatic stress disorder and including the people, the Capitol Police officers who responded, the staff who were working there and the members of Congress themselves, of course and any other family members who are in the building or, or visitors. Um, and so I think, but I think it, it just shows, it's more indicative of, of the ride or more of a indicative of the, the domestic terrorists themselves and their broken motivations. I think mm -hmm. the lack of faith you have in your, your fellow Americans to elect people who represent their views right that's the, the premise of congress is 435 people plus you know 100 senators 535 people elected by people around the country to represent their views and house districts i mean are small you know if it's your senator that's a big district of a state but for you know house members it's a it's they obviously vary very much in their districts and who they represent and so to assume that you as someone from from x state and district should act on or act violently or or feel so impassioned about so impassioned in a negative way about the conduct of someone else's chosen representative to me is just completely it's it's a foreign concept because it's i can disagree with members of congress and senators up and down the line but I, I'm not the person that, that voted for them. That's not the way the system works. And so I think the actions on January 6th in that regard showed a real rupture in the way we, as a society, are thinking about our Congress, our legislative branch. And I think it raises bigger questions about the structure of, of 
structure of of politics and elections and how we think about them and and the broken way that we equate ex senator ex congressperson with an ideal or with one policy and and the way that 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 blurs and I think media plays a big role in this if we equate these people with one thing and they're able to be demonized or angelicized for it that blurs the work that they or their that they mostly their staff <laughs> do on a daily basis for the people that they represent and so I have more trust I think in in people to elect quality representatives I mean I understand that won't happen everywhere across the board but I also have faith that the system work its checks and balances to to make voices that are unwholesome let's just say um, less effective um, but I don't I still don't um, begrudge my fellow citizens electing people that they you know share a view with and because I think I believe in the system of democracy um, and the choices that my fellow Americans make um, when they vote and so I think that like the point you bring up about the violence against proposed violence against Congress people is just it's just very disturbing in that way it's it's disturbing because it's it would be so ineffective <laughs> if successful it would not get to the problem to the root of the problem that we have at all um and so i think the fact that for some people that you know committing violence against elected officials would solve any of their problems indicates that we have a bigger um we have bigger fish to fry in terms of in terms of the way we relate to one another and and the benefit people see in in elections and i think um about the historical symbol i think i touched on this a bit earlier i mm -hmm. i think um yeah i think it's just yeah, maybe you can cut that earlier. I don't know. <laughs> I can go over it again. If no, really yeah, no, 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 no. You already touched on it for sure. Um, but it's also one thing we should know is that we're still facing legal issues with this um, sort of preceding legal issues with the insurrection. So hopefully, I mean, we're two positive people, but hopefully um, you have to throw faith in our legal system. So we'll see how that goes. Um, so if you don't mind, we're gonna transition into maybe a somber topic. Um, I know we've had the chance to talk about this before, but I hope you can be as candid and open and honest with the listeners as well. Um, can you please tell us a bit about your dad? Um, and if you're comfortable doing so, please share his name um, and you know why and how did he pass away? Yeah, well, yeah, hopefully, every time I talk about it, it gets a little bit easier, which is indicative of what I said earlier, that the more we have tough conversations, the easier they get. Um, so hopefully I'll hold it all together today. But um, yeah, thank you for bringing him up. Um, his name, my dad's name is Bart, it was Bart, um, which is a classic dad name. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, he was my favorite person on the planet. I told, I've told many people that. Um, he passed away this past summer um, in August of 2020 from cancer, which he'd had bits and spurts of um, and had different treatments for about five years. So um, I think we 
as a family, you know, had hope that in this slow progression, slow, slowly progressing cancer that he had, that in the time that passed, we would find the cure or find a treatment that was effective. And so kind of didn't, it didn't, it didn't, wasn't something I worried about usually except every few months or something when he would have a scan, I would worry. Um, but it was fairly clear in about May of last year that, that we might have run out of the options that would be effective. And we, at that point, we're just facing time um, with no real prospects for, for treatment. And that was very demoralizing. <laughs> um, and I know I, I will take, I will say at the front end that any of my comments about grief will be only, you know, grief is, it's individual and context specific. And even my family members and I didn't process the same way. So all that to say, I don't speak for everybody grieving or wish to give advice, but because um, all situations are different. But um, the, 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 I think that's the thing with cancer, right? Um, it's demoralizing when you, when you know that you can't, there is no solution. Um, and, and like you said, I tend to be pretty positive. And so that for me was, was unthinkable and a bit of a brick wall. And I was very angry um, at most everyone um, at that point about like why we weren't just trying things. Um, and so, yeah, so he passed away in August. Um, I was able because of COVID and silver lining um, to spend the last few months of his life with him, um, which was really beautiful, but very difficult because again, I knew that we were just talking about time and I had no idea how much time I thought it might be a year. I thought it might be two years. I had no idea that it'd be three months. Um, so I just sat with him a lot and we had some good conversations, but I think I'll just say in that moment of grief, well, I'll say losing a parent slowly, like I'll say quote slowly like I did, which was not that slow, but um, still not a sudden death, obviously. Um, one benefit is you get to kind of grieve on the front end. So I was able to process a lot of the anger and the hurt and the confusion and the like idea of these like last moments. Um, I was able to do a lot of that on the front end um, before he even passed away. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make it easier um, after the fact. So I think especially you know, cancer is very um, vicious, and and I think I had read enough books and seen enough movies, of, you know, where people die, like these, like, 18th century, you know, <laughs> period pieces where somebody dies, and they're, like, just laying in bed, and then they die, um, and I think if you've experienced death or seen it happen, you know, that that's not necessarily the case, it's not this, like, peaceful journey out of... <laughs> every time um, out, of, out of earth. And so I think um, that was difficult to, to see and to help, you know, facilitate kind of the end. Um, but I think it made it a bit easier because before he passed away, it was clear that he was ready to go. And that like at a certain point he had left us you know he was no longer my dad at that point he was a person I was caring for 
Um, and I think that made it a bit easier too, to just kind of separate out, like he's already, he's found peace somewhere um, beyond this like crappy <laughs> hand that he's been dealt and that we've been dealt. Um, and so I think that perspective was really good for me to have um, and the opportunity, like I said, to kind of get a lot of that anger, frustration, sadness, all of that stuff kind of processing and cooking already before he, he died. Um, and all that to say, I think like I did feel for a long time, like it uh, just the feeling that it was unfair in general um, because my dad was very healthy he was a school teacher he like ran marathons and rode his bike and walked to school every day and was just like everybody in town knew him kids would yell at him when he drove by like it was he was just a bit of a town hero and so I think there was a sense of unfairness that I felt but that also people around town were saying you know oh, it's not fair. It's so unfair. He's so great. And I was like, well, now, now I feel like I have to manage your emotions too. I know you're sad, but like, I'm sad. Um, so I think that was challenging as well. And probably something that people with grief go through as well. Not, not to say like my dad was a celebrity or anything, but I think when there's a gap in your social, you know, like it's people's tendency to say, oh, like, this is so sad. It's breaking my heart. And it's like, for a grief, somebody going through grief, it's kind of like, yeah, it's breaking your heart. Imagine how I feel, <laughs> which is not fair, but it's an angry response you might have, which is totally normal. But um, I think, I think once I moved past the initial, this is so unfair. And like, why is this the hand we were dealt? Um, could it be somebody else's dad? Like all of those sorts of horrible things that you think when you're going through something like that, I think I ultimately landed on the idea that I, I wouldn't have traded my dad. So what if I was born with a, I was born to a dad who didn't have this gene or wasn't prone to cancer and he didn't ever have cancer. Like, sure, that would be great, but he probably wouldn't be the same as my dad. And like, I had a really great dad and a great childhood and like great stories and experiences. And so I think that outlook on, I got a great, I got a great, shot with him like I had 24 years with in my opinion the best dad in the world right so like I can't complain too much about that and like yes I can be sad and I can be angry for a while and probably will be and it will hit me differently at different times in my life um but on the whole like his living life he lived more in the life he had which was too short but he lived more in it than a lot of people will so I think, of course, he would want more time, um, too, and I would want more time with him, but we've had a great time, so I think that's kind of where I've landed now, like, what, six months out of it, or eight mm -hmm. months now, but um, like I said, it also comes and goes in waves, and there'll be things that I see that I think of him, and I'm like, stopped in my tracks and have to take a beat, but, but for right now, I think we're, we're in a good spot, and like, I know that he, from my my belief, my religious proclivities say that he is seeing everything as it happens and and we'll we'll see each other again. So I think that's trying to, to like get the good perspective on it. But again, changes all the time. Um my heart goes out to you and your family. Um and 
I will note that a redeeming quality of yours is your positivity, honestly, your perspective on life, especially after losing a loved one. Um, what do you or how do you tap into that outlook now and through life? Um, is that because of your faith or just who you are as a person? Because I know you are a person of faith. Yeah, I think so. I think I probably touched on it a bit earlier. I think the basis for for one, I'll say thank you for thinking I'm a positive. Uh, I hope I come across that way. I, I'm not always internally um, <laughs> as positive as I might try to be externally. But I think the basis for that, and specifically regarding my dad's death, is what I, you know, was talking about just a few minutes ago about recognizing that I had a great experience with my dad and had a great childhood and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And so that as a basis is really helpful. But then I think moving on and like, how do I apply this in day-to-day life? Um, And how is it a lesson? Um, I think it's very much based in, again, I feel like I keep coming back to this like experiential, like, you have to have experiences to get stronger, to get used to things. But I really believe that. And so I think my dad's death um, was extremely influential for me in terms of building building my character and building up empathy and, and sympathy in me um, and just compassion for others and what they may face and go through because I think like you can go to all the counseling and all the classes and trainings in the world about how to empathize with other people who've had hard experiences but if you haven't had those hard experiences it's very difficult I think I would think to to be the most effective at that and so I'm not I'm not saying I'm like great at (laughs) I'm not saying I'm great at relating to other people all the time but I do think that having gone through that and kind of getting the perspective on life that it gave me, um, not least of which was just to live life um, every day and, and, and to kind of take his lesson of, you know, finding hobbies that you like and finding people that you love and building a life that is full and vibrant and bright and, and brings joy to others. I think that was the biggest lesson he, his life gave me, but but that that I can now talk with people better um, who might be going through grief or who might be experiencing difficult times or hardships. I think that coming to them from a place of, of understanding and not assuming that I will get, like, I think the other part of it is like, I haven't read a grief book and I probably should have, but I think what I learned is that grief is very different for different people. I mean, my siblings and I experience grief differently um, for the same person and we're in the same family. So it's, it's just different for everyone. And so I think that also is a good, a good lesson to learn because I would never approach someone now and say, Oh yes, I understand completely. Like how you feel exactly at this moment, because that's not true. Like they could be feeling like I know for myself, I would have, like 10 rounds of emotions in a day at a certain point. And so I think it's just a really, it was a good lesson in listening and recognizing that people will wear their feelings differently. Like I'm not always going to show if I'm upset 
um, when I might be most upset or I might show that I'm really upset. And I think recognizing that from other people and that our emotions about hard things are not always logical <laughs> and that they, they aren't wrong emotions. Like we might think, oh, I'm supposed to be really, really sad right now, but I might feel actually a little bit happy um, or I'm supposed to be really, really happy right now. And I might feel a little bit like frustrated and I think that's healthy to look at and just to recognize the spectrum of emotions we have. Um, and I think, again, going through something very difficult for me was a good exercise in recognizing that. Um, and so I hope that helps me to be more empathetic and, you know, be a good sounding board for other people moving forward. Thank you so much for sharing, honestly. I do appreciate your responses. Um, I guess a little final note that we can ask is what impassions you on a day-to-day -day basis and impassions, not necessarily that you are passionate, but what impassions you as a person um, on a day-to-day? -day? Um, and yeah, let's start with that. Yeah, well, I think I'm always like a little self-conscious. I'm like, I don't really have hobbies. Like everybody has hobbies. You have hobbies. <laughs> you still have to go to trivia night. That's like a Yes, hobby. yes. Um, I think... So what impassion, what, is, what makes me excited to get out of bed? I think at this point, I really think my work does. And I don't, I don't expect that to always be the case. And it isn't the case every day. But I think feeling productive for good or bad, that is something that impassions me. And so I think getting out of bed every day with a plan for what I'm going to do um, or setting a plan for what I'm going to do impassions me because then I feel very motivated to to get things done. Um, trying not to measure my self-worth with productivity, but that's a constant battle. Um, I'm also in school and I think I really like school um, and I like learning, which I think I mentioned at the top too. And I like reading about things I'm interested in and I like thinking through things and I can get very in my head about things. So I think I get impassioned about being able to face another day and like not knowing like what will happen today that will just be like a total mind blow for me or like what I'm going to learn today that's going to like what if what if I learned something today that changes my life trajectory completely like what if I unlock something today that's just like this is what you're supposed to do or like this is you know something you need to pursue or this is something you're really good at and like you didn't know it yet but this is like the skill that you're going to use to like impact people um and I think I think um another thing that impassions me is just getting up and and being around other people I generally like get up pretty soon I'm not a snoozer I get up on the first alarm usually and like I'm excited to get started and have coffee and eat breakfast and talk to my roommates and and just engage with others and so I think that's proof that I'm extroverted probably <laughs> um but yeah I think I think all those things, like, I mean, simply, I think, like, reading impassions me, and I get excited about reading nonfiction books and articles and learning, I guess, I guess, on a whole, learning about myself and about the world around me impassions me, makes me get up in the morning and, and get going, and, um, yeah, I just get really excited. I get really, and you mentioned trivia, I get really excited about facts, like, <laughs> fun facts. I don't know if everybody else thinks they're fun, but I think they're really fun. And so I like 
that maybe that was part of the reason I like the hill so much because it just seemed like everywhere there was just history and trivia mm-hmm. that you could like learn I mean there just has to be mountains of trivia about like representatives and senators alone um historically and presently so I think I'm always just interested in the obscure and the weird trivia and interesting facts so maybe I'll just say learning broadly impassions me um and leave it there after rambling for quite a while no you're not a rambler at all I mean even if you were I wouldn't ever believe it you wouldn't accuse me (laughs) no how important do you find it to be agreeable I know we've talked about likability and agreeability (laughs) how important is that to you yes it is extremely important (laughs) so much so that it is a detriment and I'll actually in the recent like I think in the past week or so since we've talked the last time Mm -hmm. um it's actually been made very clear how my constant need to be a peacekeeper and and be agreeable and kind of grin and bear it is not always the best solution and I think I've learned this um in school specifically in my in my master's program that like I am generally a very good group member and easy to work with because I don't poke the bear. I'm very generally pretty passive. I, like I said, I'm a peacekeeper, peacemaker. I like to make sure everybody gets along um, and generally look to find ways to compromise. Um, and I think in the past week or so, um, I've been working in a group and kind of been feeling uncomfortable in it and the way the dynamic was working but just telling myself like you can do it you can do it just push through it um and then it all kind of hit the fan this week and I realized that every most other members in the group were feeling similarly and I kind of in a way discouraged them from feeling their feelings and say in in certain times and it's okay like we we are going to push through this like we can do it um and kind of projected my own insecurity about telling people how I feel onto others and, and in a way silencing them and it it didn't it's not it, it, we could have reached I guess my, my point is we could have reached a more agreeable solution probably had we all had a safe space where we felt like we could say what we felt like um earlier on and I think I think for me especially that was a really big lesson um and just not not hiding how you feel I mean within reason of course right like there's a lot of things that I just don't have the energy to argue about I think that's part of it I'm, I don't I do not have an energy supply for arguing and um, that's just not where my energy lies so so agreeability is something that I strive for um and I think I have to be better at recognizing like what's worth and a discussion not it doesn't have to be an argument every time but like what's worth the discussion um and what's not and so actually I've been learning some good lessons this week but I will say agreeability even in that lesson I was still like I hope so and so doesn't hate me like that's <laughs> always my metric um and I think that's just something I've I don't know when that happened when I became that way but but it's been a big part of my personality I would say is just being somebody that like getting you know greeting the world with like everybody must like me at all times um I don't think that's like the worst goal in the world but again when you put it in context of a situation like I just explained can can be not constructive um I think in my head I'm always like 
if I'm agreeable and likable, then we'll get more done. And I don't necessarily think that's always the case. Um, now I'm learning. So, so all that to say, learning lessons about my personality and how I'm, how I can best use it to my advantage um, and how it can be used to my disadvantage as well. So that was a bit of an update that you didn't have um, before, we, before we talked last week. Well, I'm glad you did share in this moment. There's always this thing about a bit of divergence and a bit of tension does kind of unsettle the pond a bit. It sort of creates a little chain of reaction. So sometimes it's okay to just have a little bit of the tension, just a little bit. It does make a difference. Right. So what should we expect from Lori in the next few months or within a year? So what do you plan to achieve if you do have anything or just more growth? Is that is that what yeah. there may be? Well, well I hope I, I say like, I hate when people are like, oh, college was the best four years of my life or like <laughs> your 20s are the best time of your life. And I'm like, I sure hope not. Like, I hope every year is a the best year of my life. I hope it just keeps getting better. So I think to your point, growth is always something that I find important. But in the next few months and then for the next year, I mean, I'm supposed to graduate from my master's program in December, which will be welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, because despite my despite my passion for learning, I've found myself exhausted by formal scholastic endeavors. So I'm ready to be done with that. Um, and I think I'm excited to like, I'm vaccinated now. And I think I'm really excited. I know so many people are like yourself as well, getting there. And mm -hmm. I'm really excited to just have a summer where it feels like we can go and go to a baseball game or go, you know, sit in a park or sit at a patio and not feel so nervous all the time. And mm -hmm. of course we have a lot of work to do in public health and other areas as well. So it, it's not, totally a relief but I think it's a big thing it's a big thing and it was kind of strange when I got my vaccine I was like came home and I was like expecting like balloons and like a party I was like, we've been waiting forever um and uh, like no okay now we're just doing this and we're gonna feel good about it and so so I think that's that's definitely been a positive and I think yeah so over the next few months looking forward to like seeing more friends and you know going to the weddings that were canceled last year and um and going maybe on a vacation that's very exciting to me so I think just just expanding my horizons a bit beyond like my stoop that I'm on now um is exciting but yeah I just I think I'm I'm filled with hope right now and it's like I don't mm -hmm. judging by the news and by world events I feel like I shouldn't no it's not totally warranted mm -hmm. but I think I think I'm going to manifest it and then it will, good things will happen. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just excited for what's to come. I think I might, might move. That's a big thing. So not just apartments, not, not cities. <laughs> I've still got some time in the, in the district because I've lost like a year and a half of my time here basically mm -hmm. to COVID. So, um, but yeah, just looking, oh, I'm going to run another marathon in October. Yay. I've got a lot of, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, ooh, we're getting a little stressed. I've got a lot on the calendar. Um, but I think that's just because the past year has been like nothing on the calendar. So I'm excited. I'm excited for the next few months and year, I think. Awesome. Well, Lori Williams, everyone. It was great having you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's so 
pompous. Oh my gosh. Oh. No, I'm, this was so much fun doing it. I always enjoy, I, this is not um, my ideal scenario because I enjoy hearing what you have to say. And I realize this is a platform intentionally not to, to hear what other people have to say. So I feel a bit weird that I didn't, <laughs> that you like, I just talked for like whatever an hour and this is minutes. This is why we're like eternal optimists because I'm in the same boat where I'm like, I'm relieved that I get to hear the beautiful things that my friends are up to. And selfishly, I'm like, I'm glad that I'm not talking because I can hear <laughs> the amazingness that you guys all I know. Are. Who's going to interview you? Maybe I'll, mm. if, if you need anybody, if you need the right questions, I'll happily facilitate. Maybe that might be a plan for I am in the future. We'll see. We'll definitely see. Yeah. Later. Well, it's always a pleasure. And, you know, it's like a, thing like when you do the most talking about interviews too like job interviews it's like I always feel like they go well because I'm just uh, when you get people talking about themselves they generally think the conversations go really really well um so I think it went well but I also wish I had been able to hear more from you but no I know that we will catch up probably very shortly so for sure for sure okay It's always a pleasure talking to Lori, and again, my heart goes out to her and her family. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Thank you for listening to the fourth episode of I Am. Tune in next week for the fifth and final episode of season one of I Am. Until then, much love, and I wish you the best of luck in your journey of selfhood. Bye, guys.